Well, all right, uh, I get to preach in wet sleeves today, and that's always fun. So I want to say good morning to all of you once again, especially if you happen to be visiting with us. We're glad you're here. And we have reached week three of our series called You Asked For It. And I got to tell you, um, things may get a little interesting here this morning. Uh, we said the whole idea behind this series is to answer questions that were submitted by all of you And we're trying to address the questions that were asked most frequently. So, in case you start wondering, later on, this is why we're hitting on some controversial topics today. It's because you asked for it. But before we get into those hot topics, I need to do a quick review of last Sunday's question. Many of you had asked, is the Bible reliable? And the short answer is, here at Plum Creek, we do believe that the Bible is not only reliable, it is the Word of God, and it's where we go to find truth. Now, if you missed last week and you want to hear some of our reasoning behind that belief, I encourage you to go to plumcreek.org or our mobile app and listen to the sermon. But I bring up last week's question because there's a direct connection to what we're talking about today. Last Sunday, we laid a foundation when we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So let's listen to what the Apostle Paul writes there. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, last week, we really focused on the first few words there. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, We believe that the Bible is not just a human invention. It came from God. But today, we're going to apply the rest of this passage. And according to Paul here, what is Scripture good for? Well, it's good for a lot of things, isn't it? It's good for teaching, for reproof, for rebuking or correction. And it's good for training us so that we can become the people God created us to be. But here's the question. Are we allowing God to mold us and shape us through Scripture? Let's get a little more specific here. Let's think about that specific purpose of correction. And I'll just use myself as an example. How is that going in my life right now? Where have I recently made a change because God showed me in his word that I need to make a change? Now, what if I can't think of any examples where I've been corrected by Scripture recently? Would that be because I don't need any correction in my life? You can ask my wife. That's not true. Uh, I need redirection on a regular basis But here's the deal. It's no good for me to just say that I agree with these verses if I never allow God to correct me through his word. See, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we reveal what we believe about Scripture. Do you know where the rubber meets the road? Here's where it happens. It happens when the Bible tells me something that goes against my own desires and my plans. It happens when the Bible tells me something that goes against the popular opinions in this world. And when you and I reach that intersection, we have a decision to make, don't we? The decision is, will I let Scripture shape me, or will I try to shape Scripture to match what I want it to say? 
I mention all this because of the questions we're dealing with today. We got several questions about lifestyle, about how we choose to live, and we're going to see what God's Word has to say about some very specific behaviors. And I'll go ahead and tell you, some of us may be a little uncomfortable with what we're discussing today, but that's okay because the church needs to talk about real life issues. There should not be a separation between church and life. Uh, the things we talk about in here should follow through into how we live out there. And before I read our first question, I want to say one more thing. We may have a lot of different opinions about these issues, and we may disagree on a few things. But in the end, our personal opinions don't really matter much. What, what's important is hearing what God has to say. And, and so again, that is why we draw our conclusions from Scripture. So, are you ready to jump in? Here we go. The first question we'll look at today was submitted by a number of you, and it was worded in several different ways, but the main idea was the same. The question is, is it a sin to drink? Now, to be clear, we're not talking about Dr. Pepper here. We're talking about alcohol. Um, and it's no surprise that several of you asked this question uh, because the consumption of alcohol has been on the rise in our country for quite some time. In fact, according to a 2015 survey, 70.1% of Americans reported that they drank at least some alcohol in the past year. Now, if you take 70.1% of 325 million, which is the U.S. population, that is a lot of people, isn't it? And if you are an American who, who chooses to never have a beer or a glass of wine or something a little stronger, you are very much in the minority. But where should Christians stand on this issue? That's a good question because if you go back 100 years or so, the American church was very involved in something called the temperance movement. And the temperance movement was dedicated to abolishing the production and the sale and the drinking of alcoholic beverages. That's how we ended up with a period called prohibition in the 1920s and 30s. Now, obviously, times are different now, but there is still a certain amount of confusion on this issue. I've heard people in our community say, now, if I join your church, does that mean that I have to give up drinking? And, of course, they ask that question because some churches openly promote drinking while other churches have a strong stance against it. But let's back up and ask a broader question. Instead of looking at what different churches say, let, let's go back to our foundation. What does God say on the subject? Is it a sin to drink? Well, there's a preacher named Gene Apple who sums this up pretty well. He says there is a two-part answer to that question. And first, I'll share part one with you. Based on Scripture, drinking alcohol is not necessarily a sin. And already, some people may be squirming a little bit here with that statement. But you don't have to look very far to see that the Bible does not forbid any and all consumption of alcohol. A famous example is in John chapter 2, when uh, Jesus is at a wedding, and he performs this miracle of turning water into wine. Now, if it was completely wrong to drink wine, and if we agree with Scripture that Jesus never did anything wrong, then we can safely assume that Jesus would not have performed that miracle. Now, years ago, I heard some people argue that 
the wine in John chapter 2 was non-alcoholic, like maybe a sparkling grape juice. Um, But the truth is, the biblical evidence does not point in that direction. And if you'd like to hear more of that evidence, I'd, I'd be happy to talk with you later if you like. So that's part one of our answer. Drinking alcohol is not necessarily a sin. But I said there are two parts, right? So let's complete the statement. Drinking alcohol is not necessarily a sin, but it can be. It sure can be. God has set some boundaries in this area, and these boundaries are for our own good. We find one of them in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where it says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions. So if you had been at that wedding with Jesus, it would not have been wrong to drink a little wine, but it would have been wrong to drink until you got drunk. And I want you to consider something. Out of the 70% or so of Americans who drank alcohol in the past year, what percentage do you think never got drunk? What percentage do you think never got to the stage where their decision-making was impaired? I don't have a specific answer to that question, but you and I both know that we have a huge problem with people making bad decisions under the influence of alcohol. Now, Why do you think so many people cross that line? Well, there are many reasons, of course, but one reason is that it can be difficult to say when at the right time. It's kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? So that tells me that we should approach this issue with a great deal of caution and respect. There's a general principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that applies here. In that chapter, Paul writes, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Best we can tell, it it seems like everything is permissible was a popular saying, either in that church or in that culture. But Paul goes on and he says, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. So now we've discovered another boundary, haven't we? Scripture tells us that we should not become a slave to anything with the exception of becoming a slave to God. So whether we're talking about alcohol or any other kind of drug, the message is clear. Don't become a slave to any substance that controls your mind and your behavior. And again, why would God give us these instructions? Because he wants to turn on the sprinklers and rain on your party? Of course not. It's because God has your best interests in mind. He's looking out for your own good and the good of those around you. There's a vivid description of alcohol abuse over in the book of Proverbs, chapter 23. That passage says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. See, these words paint a picture of a harsh reality. We could go around this room and hear one story after another about how alcohol or drugs have been a damaging influence in your marriage or in your family or in your life. Something that was supposed to bring pleasure brought so much pain instead. 
And in my years of ministry, I've seen that pain up close, and, and I want to do my part to prevent that from happening. So I'll tell you where I stand on this issue. A long time ago, I decided that I would not drink. And part of that came from my time in student ministry uh, because I noticed that the kids in my youth group were taking cues from me as their youth minister. Uh, wherever I drew the line on any particular issue, uh, they would pick up on that. And some of those students would see my line and almost use it as an excuse to go just a little bit further. So here's the thing. I, I know that I am still in a position of influence, and I know if you see me out there having a few beers somewhere, it, it raises lots of other questions. So I'm just not going to go there. And I do not want to be a stumbling block for anyone who has struggled with alcohol and now they're doing their best to leave that slavery in the past. Plus, I already have enough temptation in my life. I, I don't want to add another whole category where I'm being tempted. At the same time, though, I have to go back to what I said earlier. Uh, the Bible does not say it's always wrong to drink. So here's my advice in this area. Scripture tells us to honor God in everything that we do. So do some honest evaluation in your own life. Ask the question, am I honoring God when it comes to alcohol? We read from Ephesians 5.18 earlier, but we didn't quite finish that verse, so let's go back and do that. It says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit. Now, that's an interesting combination, isn't it? Um, don't get filled up with alcohol. Be filled with God's Holy Spirit instead. Now, are, are those two issues really connected? Absolutely, they are. Because we all know what it's like to feel empty, to feel like there's some kind of hole inside of us that needs to be filled. And people try to fill that emptiness with all kinds of things. Maybe with success in your career or relationships with other people or with alcohol or drugs. But in the end, it's a God-shaped hole inside of us. And he is the only one who can leave us filled. So let's not get confused about that. Seek God first and let him be the desire of your heart. So all right, that's one question down. And uh, if you thought that one was fun, just wait for the next one. Uh, this time, I'll share different versions of uh, this question. One of you asked, is being gay a sin or not? That's a big enough topic in and of itself, but we've got a couple other layers to add here. Someone asked, how can we talk to someone who is a homosexual about what Christians believe about homosexuality? And, and that's really good. It's kind of asking, how can the church engage in dialogue in more productive ways than maybe what we've seen in the past? That's a great question. And I'll read one more here. Why do we make homosexual sin so huge and wrong compared to heterosexual sin? And obviously, that's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? There's some backstory here. And of course, it hints at the fact that homosexuality is uh, quite a controversial topic among Christians today. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try to address all three of these questions in the short amount of time that we have left. And uh, that's easier said than done, but I'll do my best. First of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that the world around us is changing very quickly on this particular issue. 
A Pew Research study shows that there has been a dramatic shift among U.S. adults regarding their opinions on same-sex marriage. In this graphic, the, the green line shows how many Americans were in favor of gay marriage, and then the yellow line shows how many were opposed. But look at how much things have changed in just a few years. Back in 2004, 60% of Americans were opposed to same-sex marriage, and just 31% were in favor. But then fast forward to last year, 2017, when only 32% are opposed and 62% are in favor. Those stats completely flip-flopped. So what's behind that huge change? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Just a few decades ago, homosexuality was a topic that wasn't discussed very much, especially in the church. But today, the issue is all around us. It's in the news. It's in the entertainment world. It's in politics. And more and more, it's hitting close to home. Because of that, the church needs to be clear on where we stand. But that's been part of the issue, hasn't it? Uh, Homosexuality tends to be one of the many polarizing topics in our world today. Uh, People divide into different camps, and they get really confident that their camp is the right camp. But again, we're not here to look at human opinions this morning. Uh, We want to know what God says on this issue. And the first thing I would do is point to a verse over in the book of John, chapter 1. In this verse, John is describing Jesus, and he refers to him as the Word. And John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look at those last five words there, full of grace and truth. There are huge implications to those words. Grace means that Jesus loves us just as we are, and he will accept us, even though we don't deserve to be accepted. We don't have to clean ourselves up before we come to him. He takes us as we are. But then there's the truth side of Jesus. Truth means that Jesus does not leave us where we are. He speaks truth into our lives, and he changes us and molds us into who we should be. Remember, that's what we were reading over in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So here's the point. Many people today think of grace and truth as almost mutually exclusive. Some people are all about showing grace, but their version of grace leaves out the truth. You're not allowed to speak truth into someone's life or challenge their behavior. It's really 100% grace and 0% truth. But then others take the opposite approach. They're really strong on speaking the truth, but they're pretty weak on grace. We all know someone like that, don't we? But what is the best approach? Well, we might think the best thing to do is to try to have a perfect balance of these two qualities, like 50% grace and 50% truth. But that's not what, that's not what we see in Jesus, is it? What, what did the verse say? Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, 100% of both. Now, how does that work? Well, read the Gospels. And you'll see how Jesus does this exact thing very consistently. And his example does not come naturally to us, but it is the example that we're called to follow. So let's apply this principle to the topic of homosexuality. How can we do that? 
Well, for one thing, I believe we have to admit that this subject is very complex. It's easy to have an opinion when you're looking at it from a distance. But things get complicated when you have friends or family members who are gay or you're dealing with same-sex attractions yourself. So this is one of those times when we should follow the instructions of Scripture to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Here recently, I've been listening to some voices who have a very personal connection to this issue. One of them is a woman named Becca Mason. Becca is a committed follower of Christ, but she's also dealt with same-sex attractions for much of her life. And she did not ask to feel the way that she does. She's really struggled trying to, to figure out what to do with these feelings. Over the years, she's had people who claimed to be Christians saying and doing some very different things. Becca said on the one hand, she had a group of progressive friends who told her to embrace those feelings and just go with it. But then on the other hand, she had a group of ultra-conservative friends who basically stopped interacting with her as soon as they found out she had been attracted to women. Now, both of these groups called themselves Christians. So what do you do with that? Well, I want to read you a quote from Becca that I found very helpful. She says, Groups on both sides of the debate often fall short of balancing the age-old tension between law, or truth, and grace. Progressive Christians have to complete some relatively impressive theological gymnastics to work around the Bible's consistent prohibition of same-sex activity in relationships. And hyper-conservative Christians have yet to explain how disowning children and rejecting fellow parishioners with same-sex attractions can possibly fall under Jesus' instruction to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's a uh, very interesting quote. But you know what? That's still the opinion of one person. So let's go directly to Scripture. Now, it's been a while since I addressed this topic, and I want to go back and um, share some things that uh, I brought up a few years ago. And it's important to remember that the Bible has a lot to say about relationships and sexuality. Uh, For example, let's read what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 when he was uh, talking about marriage. Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees here, and he says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now with those words... Jesus is confirming the truth of Scripture. He's, he's quoting from the book of Genesis, and he says, yes, this is the plan that God originally established. God invented the ideas of marriage and sexuality, and the pattern is that one man and one woman would be joined together in a committed covenant relationship that lasts as long as they both shall live. Now, to help us think about this, I want to show you a box. And let's say this box represents a boundary. And everything inside the box is a place of safety and security and love. But outside the box is a lack of security. Outside the box is a place where you are bound to get hurt. 
Now, if I tell someone I care about that they really shouldn't go outside that box, am I being restrictive? Actually, yes, I am. But am I doing that to be manipulative or controlling? No, of course not. The motivation is love. It's just like when I tell my kids to get out of the street when a car is coming. I want them to leave a place of danger and go to a place of safety because I care for them. And you probably see the connection that I'm making here. Uh, That box represents God's idea of marriage. So what do we have inside that box? You got one man and one woman committed to each other in a covenant relationship for life. And yes, that box is a boundary, um, but God has designed life so that this is a place where we can find safety and security and love. Now, I will admit, life inside this box can be difficult if one or both parties are not going about marriage God's way. But if we do follow God's design, here's what it looks like. A husband and a wife each make the decision to willingly give up their freedom for a higher purpose. And each one of them says, I have chosen you for better or for worse. So that means even if you lose your good looks, even if you get on my nerves, even if I don't always have those warm and fuzzy feelings that I felt at the beginning, you don't have to keep trying to earn my love. You don't have to keep performing. You have my love. I'm committed to you for life. That is God's version of marriage. And God says, in order for marriage to be that place of safety and security and love, you need to keep all sexual activity inside the box. Now, mainstream culture does not agree with this at all. Uh, They would say, oh, come on. Could you be any more old-fashioned or outdated? We don't need that box anymore. Uh, We can find love wherever and however we want. As long as it's among consenting adults, it's fine. But it's like I said earlier, this is where the rubber meets the road. Are we going to let Scripture shape us? Or will we try to shape Scripture to match our own opinions and our own desires? Because when we allow God to correct us, We're going to pay attention to a verse like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, where it says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any other kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Wow, not even a hint of sexual immorality. So what does that mean? Well, the original Greek word that's translated here as sexual immorality is the word pornea, which is an umbrella term that refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, any behavior that takes place outside the box. So there are a lot of things that fall under this umbrella, right? Adultery, obviously. Polygamy, yes. But there's more. This would also include two people just hooking up for some casual sexual experience. It would include people texting inappropriate pictures to someone else. It includes a couple choosing to be sexually active before marriage. Pornography falls outside the box. And it's true. Homosexual behavior also falls outside the box. 
But let's pause for a second and remember one of those questions that was submitted. Someone asked, why do we make homosexual sin so huge compared to heterosexual sin? Well, when you look at the standards set by Scripture, it sort of levels the playing field a little bit, doesn't it? After all, how many of us have never been tempted to take part in any kind of behavior that falls outside the box? The truth is, just about all of us have been quite tempted to wander past God's boundaries in this area, especially when you consider what Jesus said on the subject. Jesus said, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery with her. Matthew 5.28. So as we talk about these issues, let's remember that just about everyone struggles to maintain God's standard of sexual purity. And again, God sets boundaries not to keep us from the good things in life. He sets those boundaries for our own good. People get hurt when somebody decides to venture outside the box. And the damage comes in more ways than I can mention. But even beyond the personal pain and the pain that comes to our families, there is a greater consequence to sexual sin or any other kind of sin. The greater consequence is that sin separates us from God. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And yes, homosexual behavior is on the list, but let's make sure we notice everything else that's on the list. People who engage in any kind of sexual sin, people who are greedy, people who have the habit of getting drunk, people who are cruel or dishonest. Sin is bad news for everyone because all of us have sinned against God. But let's go on and read the very next verse. Paul says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this is where we find hope. Paul's writing to followers of Jesus here, and he says, In the past, you were defined by your sin, but that's not true anymore. Sin doesn't define you anymore. When you surrendered your life to Christ and when you died to your old self, you got a new identity. You became a new creation and God doesn't judge you based on your past anymore. That, that past has been forgiven. When God looks at you now, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what grace is. And that's why grace is so amazing. But remember, Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. Like we said, God will take you, where, take you right where you are, but he won't leave you right where you are. He will speak into your life through Scripture. He will point out where you need to change. He will say, now go and sin no more. He'll give you the strength through His Spirit so that you can have victory over sin and temptation. Now, will you defeat every temptation every single time? No, none of us do. But can you grow to become more like Jesus over time through the power of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. 
So it's kind of interesting. Uh, we've been dealing with the question of homosexuality, but we ended up talking about all of us. Because the truth is, there is a lot of common ground here, no matter who you are. But at the same time, I don't want to minimize the unique challenges of someone dealing with same-sex attraction. I don't want to be condescending and pretend that I know what it's like because my temptations have been different. What I do know is this. We don't necessarily ask to be tempted in the ways we're tempted. And you know what? It's not wrong to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. It's wrong to give in to temptation. And this is where it's been really helpful for me to learn from a group of people who deal with same-sex attractions, but they're also deeply committed to following Jesus and following the biblical teaching on sexuality. I mentioned Becca Mason earlier, but I also want to mention a man named Sam Albury. Sam is a Christian, he's a minister from the UK, and he's written a book called Is God Anti-Gay? This is a short book, and it's written from the perspective of someone who personally understands the issue, and he still maintains a commitment to what Scripture says. And I would recommend this book if you want to dig a little deeper. Now, I realize that I haven't even brought up a lot of the complicated questions that surround the topic of homosexuality. Uh, There are questions like, What should I do when one of my family members comes out as gay? And we could literally be here all day discussing these issues, but I want to point you to one more resource. Sam Albury, who I just mentioned, is the co-founder of a website called livingout.org. And this website goes into more detail about many of the complex questions we may be asking. So if what I've said here today uh, didn't answer or deal with some of your issues, go to that website. It's very helpful. But here's what I want to end with today. I want us to look at Plum Creek and ask, what kind of church will we be? Will we be a church that offers both grace and truth? And will we be a safe place for people who are seeking God but struggling with temptation? I pray that we will be that kind of church because that's the kind of church we all need. We all need a life-changing encounter with the risen Christ, the one who is full of grace and full of truth. Let's pray. Father, these are uh, some difficult questions that we're dealing with today because... uh, they, they hit us in these real-life situations where we have to decide who we're going to trust. Will we trust our own opinions, our own experiences? Will we trust the world? Or will we trust you and your word? God, uh, as we wrestle and as we seek you, I pray that you will just bring clarity to our lives. Help us to know how to move forward, how to accept your grace and accept your truth, and how to extend that to others as well. Lord, we need your help to do that. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.